what does it mean to be free? I mean, what really is freedom? Because it, it looks like different things to different people. You know, to a teenager, for example, a freedom, may, freedom may sound like uh, being free from mom and dad's rules. You know, may, I want to make my own decisions. I can't wait to be on my own, and, and I don't have to have any of your rules, and I can do things the way I want to do things. To an adult, maybe uh, freedom looks like financial freedom. They would like to have the ability to, within reason, you know, buy whatever they want and not have to worry about what's in the bank account. Now, I'm, making, I'm painting with broad strokes, okay, so don't, don't get offended by any of these. I'm, I'm just trying to make some illustrations, but let's say a senior adult. Of course, this only applies to a small fraction of them, but a senior adult, maybe it looks like the ability to live at home instead of assisted living or in a nursing home, something like that. But usually, we typically think of freedom as simply being able to do what we want to do when we want to do it. And really, if you look up the dictionary definition of freedom, it really doesn't deviate much from that. That's really how people define freedom, is being able to do what you want to do. But the problem with that is that a lot of times when we exercise our freedom, we end up even more trapped or in prison than we were before. For example, a teenager they just cannot wait to get out of the house. Pretty soon they find out as they go out on their own that being an adult is not as easy or as fun as, as what they thought it once was. They find out that you have to work to get by and that your work doesn't end when you walk home through the door. You have chores to do and cleaning and bills to pay and all these things. And they find out, and a lot of us think back, and we think, man, remember when we used to be kids and things were so simple and we didn't have responsibilities an adult soon realizes that there's really no such thing, I don't think, as financial freedom. I mean, it takes one disease, one diagnosis, one bad investment, and uh, you may lose that. A senior may suffer a fall or something like that, and, and maybe wish, man, I'd kind of preferred living with some help rather than being confined uh, by, own, by, by my own body. So the question is, does freedom really exist, or is it just something that we talk about? Does freedom actually, is it a real thing? I think it is. The Bible talks about it. Galatians 5.1 says it pretty clear. It says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So I think freedom does exist, but I think it's also very short-sighted of us to think that freedom is simply just being able to do whatever you want to do whenever you want to be able to do it. Rex mentioned the 4th of July and the freedom that we have in this country. And every 4th of July, every Memorial Day, every Veterans Day, there's kind of this familiar thought that returns to me as I reflect on our freedom. And truthfully, I'm a little ashamed that I don't take more time to reflect on our freedom uh, on times that aren't holidays. And so this memory kind of fades from my memory, I guess, during the hustle of everyday life, and then it kind of returns to me when I really think about it. But it's this idea that our independence, that our collective freedom as a country was gained through the surrender of individual freedoms. You ever think about that? That in order for us to have the freedom that you and I have today, so many people had to surrender their individual freedoms in order for that to happen. Soldiers left their homes. They missed holidays. They missed their babies being born. They sacrificed time that is priceless, something that cannot be replaced, something they can't get back. They left not knowing if they'd ever come back. A lot of people did not come back. 
They left their homes to go to unfamiliar places. Many times they were treated with hostility, even by the people that they were trying to help. And the whole time they were submitting to the authority, you know, the leaders of, of this nation. And most of them didn't do it because they had nothing else to do. It's not that they didn't have anything to lose. I mean, a lot of soldiers that went to go fight for our freedom, they had a lot to lose. But they also realized that we had everything to gain. And so they surrendered their own good for the good of other people. They sacrificed because they believed it was a worthwhile sacrifice because the reward outweighed the risk and the sacrifice. Now, I don't want to make more out of a soldier's sacrifice. Um, I, there are a lot of people, especially on the holidays, something I'm very uncomfortable with and I, I don't like at all is when people take a soldier's sacrifice and they almost hold it up at the same level as Jesus' sacrifice. That to me is like, nope. That's an, I mean, an, but I also don't want to make too little of a soldier's sacrifice. I cannot imagine the sacrifices that they make. It is not anything compared to the sacrifice that Jesus made for us but Jesus also says, uh, no greater love than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. So what a soldier does, the, the sacrifices they make for our freedom, that, that should mean something to us. But I think this also gives us a glimpse into what real freedom is. That it just isn't about doing what you want to do. It's about making that possible, making freedom possible, not just for yourself, but for a lot of people, I think that what's, that's what real freedom is, and that's what Jesus did for us. And so many times, people in their pursuit of their own personal freedom, they kind of do the opposite of what soldiers do. They surrender nothing. They sacrifice nothing. And sometimes they exercise their freedom at the cost of people around them. They're just simply doing whatever they want to do, and they don't care who it affects. But real freedom requires surrender. Real freedom requires sacrifice. Now we're continuing our series called Generosity. We're wrapping it up here in a couple of weeks. And when it comes to generosity, I think real freedom is giving like you have nothing to lose. But it's not because you don't have anything to lose. It's because you have everything to gain. So today we are going to look at the example of a woman who is an example of that kind of generosity, a woman who held nothing back from God. This comes from Luke chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. Luke 21, 1 through 4. Short passage of scripture here today. Maybe a familiar story to some of you. And here's what it says. Jesus looked up. He saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw the poor widow put two small copper coins. He said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of, the poverty, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. There are some people who are willing to risk it all, aren't there? Did you hear about what's happening today, that history may be broken tonight at 8 o'clock p.m.? I don't know if that's our time or different time zone, but Travis Pastrana, the X Games uh, extraordinaire, the, the daredevil, the uh, creator, I believe, of Nitro Circus, that show where they do crazy stunts, excuse me. Hello? There. Tonight, he is attempting to break history. He is uh, going to attempt three of Evil Knievel's jumps. 
That's happening tonight on the History Channel. And uh, so apparently he's using a similar bike that Evil would have jumped. He's using an Indian Scout. He said it's a little different than the modern-day bikes that I usually ride. He said it's like a, it's trying to, he said it's like trying to jump a tank. That's what he said. But he's trying to, to make it as close to Evil Knievel as possible. And he's also going to attempt to break two of his records. So he's going to jump, actually three, I guess you would say. Um, he's going to jump 52 cars versus Evil's 50 cars. He's going to jump, try to jump 16 buses versus Evil's 14 buses. And one of them is actually a record that he can't break because Evil never sex, uh, successfully completed it. And that is jumping the fountains at Caesar's Palace. Now, I don't know if any of you remember or have ever seen the attempt... Uh, seen the attempt of uh, Evil Knievel to jump over the fountains at Caesar's Palace. But if you've ever seen slow motion video of Evil Knievel crashing, you've probably seen it. It's that, where, that one where he's in a white jumpsuit and he looks like an absolute ragdoll as he's hitting the ground. You guys have probably seen it. And it's because he broke like 43 bones when he attempted it, something crazy. Allegedly, he spent almost a month in a coma. I mean, so anyways, uh, that was the last time that Evil Knievel attempted that jump. And so tonight, Travis Pastrana is going to try to complete that jump. Some people are willing to risk it all. It makes you wonder why people do that. Why are people willing to do that? Is it the thrill? Are they that bored? Is it the fame? Maybe they have nothing to lose. Maybe they feel like they have everything to gain. Well, the story is about a woman, I believe, who risked it all, who held nothing back, who put everything that she had out there. Now, just to give you a little context, that always helps me when I kind of know the background of the story. If you've spent much time in church at all, you probably remember, you know, Palm Sunday. We celebrate when Jesus rode into Jerusalem. That was the last city that he came into, and he rode in on a donkey. And so he enters the city. It's called the Triumphal Entry, we call it. So right after Jesus does that, this story kind of takes place. He comes in. He rides in on a donkey. He goes into the temple, chases everybody out, says, you've turned, turned this house of worship into a, a den of robbers, chases them out, and he begins teaching. And the scribes and the Pharisees, the Sadducees, already, already aren't big fans of Jesus because of his reputation that precedes him. But not only that, but he kicked everybody out of their temple. That was like their cash cow. That's how they made money. They didn't like that. And then Jesus spoke with authority like nobody else, and they weren't buying it. Or at least they pretended not to. So they weren't big fans of Jesus. And so they kept asking questions of Jesus, not because they wanted to learn anything, but because they wanted to catch Jesus saying something that he shouldn't say. And so in one of these conversations, uh, this takes place. This precedes what we just read earlier about this woman. This kind of gives us an understanding of why he says what he says. But Luke chapter 20, verses uh, 45 through 47, says this, And in the hearing of all the people, he said to the disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, in the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they have received the greater condemnation. So this story that we read earlier about the woman comes right after this. It talks about Jesus talking about how the scribes, they love to be seen. They wear fancy clothes and they choose the best seats, you know, the seats of honor. They had these great long prayers so that people could notice them. And then in the midst of all this, Jesus mentions something else. He says, they devoured widows' houses. 
Jesus doesn't really explain anything beyond that. And because we weren't there, we don't exactly know the context of why Jesus chooses to say that about the scribes. So we're kind of left to kind of figure out what it is that Jesus means. And what we're left with is this. Apparently, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they were inflicting off mandatory offerings on people to the point that if you didn't have the money, they'd take your house. They'd repossess your house. If you didn't give enough money at church, they were going to take your house. And they had the power and the authority in this day to do that. So apparently that's something similar to that. We don't know exactly what was going on, but apparently that's what's going on. These men were taking houses from widows. And so in the middle of this warning, he's warning the disciples about these kinds of people. He looks up and he sees two very different kinds of people putting their money in the offering. He sees the rich putting their offering in a box. The first time we read about putting offering in a box is 2 Kings 12, verse 9, when Jehoiada, the priest, he took a box and he put a hole in it. They were uh, making temple repairs. And so he's collecting offering to repair the temple. So he put a hole in a box and and put it out there. That was the first offering box that we read about. And uh, so this, over time, it kind of changed, and offerings were collected instead to support the Levites, the priests that served in the, in the, in the uh, temple, and also to give offering to the poor. And so the rich people, they were uh, putting their offering in, and they loved to be seen. Now, in this day, the bigger the coin, the more value that it had. And the bigger the coin, the more noise it made when you dropped it in the box. People could really hear the thud. You know, when it hit, when a really big, heavy coin worth something hit the bottom of the box. And the rich people, they loved that noise. They probably put them in one by one so you could hear the thud each time they gave one of their great big coins. And so these rich people, they were coming, they were giving these huge sums of money, but they were doing it simply to be seen by people. And then Jesus looks up and he sees a poor widow. That's how she's described. A poor widow makes her way to the box. And I wonder what her demeanor was as she made her way to the box. Was there shame? Was there worry? Was there uh, obligation? What did she feel as she walked up to give her offering? And she didn't have great big coins like the rich people. She was poor. She had nothing of value. The only thing she had were two small coins, mites. The coins together equaled one sixty-fourth of a denarius, which is one day's wage. So she had in her hand, all she had was one sixty-fourth of a day's wage. Now, it's kind of anyone's guess as far as what that would translate, but we're probably talking on the higher end, maybe two bucks, something like that. That was all she had. And she put it in, the offering. Had nothing left. Now, her gift went unnoticed by the crowd. She had just those tiny little coins. It probably didn't make much of a noise at all when she put it in. There was no loud thud when it hit the bottom of the offering box. Nobody noticed at all. If anybody noticed, it was probably for the wrong reasons. They probably thought, why even bother? (laughs) That's not going to change. That's not going to do anybody any good. Why bother giving it? And I wonder if she wondered the same thing as she put that in there. Well, this isn't going to do much good. I don't know. But her gift did not go unnoticed, did it? That's what we read, right, we read right here. That these scribes, they were giving offering to be seen. Nobody seemed to notice this woman giving her pitily little gift. But Jesus saw her give her gift. She put in more than anyone else, Jesus said, because she gave all she had. 
What people maybe didn't realize about this woman was she gave every last dime she had. She left nothing back. And even though she gave a small amount of money versus a huge amount of money, you got to understand that God's economy is a little bit different than ours. We like to look at the bottom line, don't we? Jesus, he looks at things a little different. And when he sees these two people, he doesn't say, oh, wow, that's a great big gift. I, re- I want that. That's what I prefer. No, what God really values is a giving heart, a generous heart, a trusting heart. And that is what this woman had. She gave everything that she had. I wonder why is it that she gave? Now, to be fair, I want to tell you this. There's actually a different perspective about this story. Shocking to me. I never heard it. But in my reading this week, I read a lot of people that have the opinion uh, that really this, this story isn't about this woman at all. They think that the real problem that Jesus is addressing is the fact that these religious leaders had put so much pressure on her that she felt like she had to give everything away. So a lot of people think that's really what this story is about. I think there's more to this story than that. That's my personal opinion. I understand the context and I understand God, what what Jesus is saying about the religious leaders. But I think there's more to the story than that. You know, tithing was something that God required. And I think that because Jesus seems to kind of be complimentary in what she's doing, he says, hey, this woman, she she gave more than everybody else. It seems to me that there's more to it than, than, than what these other people say. Tithing, it was something that was required by God. And I think this woman gave because that's what she thought the Lord required of her. And what really is the kicker for me about this story is she had two coins, didn't she? We could understand if she just had one, I guess, if she put everything in. But I think the fact that she had two coins and she didn't keep anything for herself, to me, that's really incredible about the story. She put both coins in. She left nothing for herself. I mean, that takes surrender. Would she have given everything that she had if she didn't trust God? If she, would she have given everything she had if she thought she wasn't going to get by with God's help? No. So to me, this gift is a testimony of God's faithfulness. It reminds me of another widow in 1 Kings chapter 17. I've been reading in the Old Testament a little bit. And uh, there's this story about, uh, I believe it's Elijah. And it was in, in the middle of a drought. And people didn't have a lot. And they were struggling to get by. And people were even dying from it. And uh, God told, tells Elijah, go to this widow's house and, and uh, tell her to make some food for you or something like that. Elijah was hungry too. So anyways, he goes to this widow's house and he says, hey, do you have something to eat? And she says, no, I'm actually on my way to get some water. I have a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil and I'm going to make a cake and me and my son are going to eat what little we have and then we're going to die because that's all we have and it's a drought. And Elijah says, okay, go ahead and do that. But before you do, I want you to make me something, okay? (laughs) God, God told me to tell you this. So anyways, the woman trusts God trust Elijah, and even though she didn't have enough for herself, she made Elijah this cake, whatever it was, and he ate it. And you know what happened? That little jar of oil and that little bit of flour, it never ran out until the drought was over. Because she had the faith to step out and to give, God made sure that she didn't run out of what she needed. But she had to step out on faith before that happened. What would have happened if she would have said, no, this is all I've got. I'm sorry, you're on your own. That might have been the end. But God chose to reward her faithfulness because she trusted that God was going to take care of her. 
It takes sacrifice. Sure, it wasn't much what the widow gave, but she, I mean, she could have used that for something, right? But she gave it to be faithful to her giving. You know, I think we've got a lot to learn from this widow. And I wonder, if this is modern-day church, what would we say to this woman? If we were aware that she had given everything that she had to the offering, what would we say? We would say, you can't do that. Let us, let, I would, this church I know for sure would say, no, you, you, you can't do that. We need, we need to help you. Let us, we, we let her give it, sure, but we'd make sure that she was taken care of. And, and I hope you know that. I hope you understand that. If you're struggling in the church, we would make sure that wouldn't happen. But I think there would be some people that say, you know, that's irresponsible. You got to take care of yourself. You can't be that generous. You can't be that giving. She gave like she had nothing to lose, not because she didn't have anything to lose. She gave because she had everything to gain. 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 3 says it this way. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. Winston Churchill said this one time, We make a living by what we give, but we make a life out of what we give. You see, I think this widow gives us a glimpse of real freedom because real freedom takes surrender and it takes sacrifice, and that's exactly what she did. She surrendered to God. She sacrificed what she had. So I wonder, what is it that we can learn from the widow? I think there's a lot we can learn from her. I think the, one of the most powerful, powerful things about this story is this, that God sees you. That's what I love about this story. This is a woman, and everybody else is wanting to be seen. They're doing everything they can do to be noticed by other people. And this widow, she doesn't have a choice. She, doesn't, she can't do anything that's going to get her noticed. She doesn't have anything to give. But you know what? Jesus sees her. That's profound, isn't it? That God sees her give her gift, that he knows. And I think there's probably some of you in this room who can relate to this woman. You're trying to be faithful and giving to the Lord, but you're struggling. You're struggling to get by. Maybe you feel bad that you can't give more. And I want you to know exactly what we see here, that God, he sees that. He sees your generosity. He sees your heart just like he saw this woman. And he knows if you're surrendered to him. He knows if you're willing to sacrifice to him. And even, I want to challenge you with this too, this woman, what she put in probably didn't make much of a difference in the grand scheme of things, but it made a difference to us today, thousands of years later from her example. It might have made a huge difference for her. So even if you think that your gift isn't going to make much of a difference, Give it anyway. It does something to your heart. It shows that you were surrendered to God, that you trust in him. Maybe that's why you haven't given. Maybe you think, you know, I'm just struggling to get by, and, you know, I'm going to wait. You know, I'm supposed to get a promotion, or I'm supposed to get a pay raise, or I'm, I'm trying to, I'm getting something paid off, and then I'll have a little extra, and then I'll be able to give. Let me tell you, if you wait till you have something left over to give to God, you're never going to be able to do it. There's never anything left over, is there? We always find some way to spend it on something. And so I would challenge you, going back to the very beginning of this sermon series, to take Abel's example. What did Abel do? He offered the first fruits of what he had. The first check he wrote was what he was going to give to God. Now, I'm not telling you where that needs to go. I'm not telling you how much. I'm, not saying, I'm just saying that I think it's important for your heart, 
for your relationship with God to give your first fruits to God. If you're waiting until you got something left over to give to God, it's not going to happen. So make a commitment to give to him first. But God, another thing we can learn about the story is God doesn't care about the dollar amount you give. I guarantee, and he just about says it himself, that he values one dollar from a sincere heart more than a million dollars from a greedy heart. I guarantee that's what God thinks about money. And here's the thing, it has nothing to do with, generosity has absolutely nothing to do with money. Absolutely nothing to do with it. You can be dirt poor, and you can be generous, or you can be greedy. You can be filthy rich, and you can be generous, or you can be greedy. We've said it the whole time throughout this series, it's not about the dollars. It's not even about the time or any of the resources you have. It's about your heart. It's about where your heart is at. We got something going on here? Hello? Just talk loud. Am I coming through? Bueller? Oh, I can't hear it up here. Sorry. Maybe the monitors are screwed up. Anyways, okay, I'll keep talking. What are we talking about? Jesus, money, generosity. It's about your heart. The question is, are you surrendered to him? Are you willing to sacrifice for him? And here's a question that I was kind of kicked in the teeth with this week. When's the last time I've ever really sacrificed something for him? When's the last time, and sacrifice means that you go without. When's the last time I went without something to give it to God? Man, that's kind of an interesting question, isn't it? When's the last time I gave something to him in such a way that I had to go without something? That's what a sacrifice is. Another thing we need to learn about giving too is that this is something that's between you and God. Our, this church, we don't monitor giving unless people ask us to. Some people, for tax purposes, they want us to keep, uh, keep tabs on it. But I've made it a point that I don't want to know anything about what anybody gives in this church. The elders are the same way. The only person that re- people that really know what people give are the people that collect the offering and the person that records it. That's it. I don't want to know. Because that's between a person and God. I don't want that to be any of my business. Now, there are churches. I was talking to a friend, and they were talking, um, to a, talking about a church that they visited. And they walked through the door, and they said it was kind of a shock because they didn't realize it when they walked in. But it was actually, uh, they were the only white people in there. Let's just say that. They were the only white people in the whole church. They didn't realize that. But the church welcomed them in, and they really enjoyed going there. But they said a weird thing about that church was when they uh, passed the offering around, You gave. You didn't do the whole once a month thing. They didn't buy that. You gave every single time. And if they didn't think you gave enough, they would stand there and say, no, you need to kick some more in here. I'd never heard of a church like that, but anyways, they were telling me this story. They said that was, now we don't do that here. Well, we don't officially do that here. Like I said, I don't know who who keeps tabs on on what happens. But like I said, to my knowledge, nobody keeps tabs on what people are giving. Um, That's between you and God, okay? That is absolutely between you and God. But there's also a temptation to pass judgment on the gifts of others. Well, you're not giving enough. Oh, that person, uh, they've got this amount of money. They should be given this amount. They should be given more. What somebody gives, in my, this is a little bit of Nate's opinion here, that's between them and God. That's a heart thing. That's between them and God. I think what we need to do instead is to lead by example. I, need, I think we need to have conversations about giving because a lot of times people just don't know what the Bible says about giving. They just don't know. They don't know what the Bible teaches. That's why we're doing this series. But I think another question that we're tempted to ask ourselves when we read the story is this. Does God want us to just give everything 
we have away until we have nothing left. Is that what this passage is saying? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think there are times that God has specifically called people to, to, yes, give everything to him. And I think that still happens today. If God calls you to do it, yes, you better do it. But I'm saying for most, of the, most people, I don't think that's what God requires. Uh, for example, that, the second half of that 2 Corinthians passage that I read, um, for if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what a person does not have. It's talking about giving. It talks about giving according to your means. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that is as a matter of fairness. Your abundance at the present time should supply their needs so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much has nothing left over. Whoever gathered little has no lack. In other words, I think we need to give according to our means. There are times that God calls us to give above our means, and I think we need to have faith that if God is calling us to give something, that we give it, and we trust him, and then we know it's going to come. I'm not saying that everybody leave this place, go sell everything you have, and just trust that, you know, if God's calling you to do that, by all means do it. But I don't think God's going to call the majority of the people in this room to do that. What I'm saying is when God calls you to give it, when you feel that tug, when that thought pops into your head that you need to give something, you give it. And trust that God's going to take care of it. The idea is that we need to surrender to God. To give what God calls us to give. And real freedom requires surrender and it requires sacrifice. And when it comes to generosity, real freedom is giving like you have nothing to lose. Because you know that you have everything to gain. See, my hope and my prayer for you is that you understand that you experience the freedom that comes from generosity. When we are surrendered to God, when we are willing to sacrifice of ourselves, we find a reward that we can't even imagine. It comes directly from him. True freedom comes through sacrifice. It comes through surrender. And man, I hope that you understand that. And I know some of you in here, you've experienced it, haven't you? You've seen that happen. You've felt the freedom that comes from surrender and from sacrifice, and it comes only from God. And I tell you what, it's one of those things that you can't understand it until you experience it. And I hope that we all in this room experience that kind of true freedom. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day you've given us today. We're thankful for this place, this house of worship. We're thankful for the people that gather here each Sunday. We want to pray for our brothers and sisters who might not be here today. And uh, we just pray that everybody is well and healthy. Uh, for those that aren't here that need to be here, Lord, convict them today that this is where they need to be, that this is important, that this is valuable, that this is something that you want us to do to be gathered together in your house with other people other people, other believers. Lord, we pray for our Christian brothers and sisters that are miles and miles away, the ones that don't look like us, talk like us, act like us, but they are brothers and sisters in Christ. We know, Lord, that they are facing things today that, that we in this country cannot imagine, so we lift them up to you, and uh, we're thankful, Lord, uh, for this opportunity that we have to worship in this way. We know that this is a tremendous blessing, and sometimes, Lord, we squander it, but we think that the that, well, maybe I want to go to church, maybe I don't. Lord, this is such an opportunity for us to be able to do this, and we're thankful for that. Lord, I pray that as we consider freedom and what it looks like, so many times, Lord, we're tempted just to do what we want to do when we want to do it, Lord, and we know that that doesn't bring freedom, that true freedom only comes from following you, from surrendering to you, from sacrificing ourselves every day to you. Give us the strength to do that. Convict us uh, with whatever area of our life we need to surrender to you. I just pray that we'll have the strength to do that. It's your name I pray. Amen.
One uh, final scripture I want to share with you real quick. Philippians 3, chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 8. It says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I wonder, when it says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, can we say that with a straight face? Do we really believe that everything else is rubbish compared to the knowledge of Jesus Christ? Sometimes we don't act like it, do we? So can we say that with sincerity? But also, how can we talk about freedom and how can we talk about surrender and sacrifice without talking about Jesus? The sacrifice that he made for us. We have, you and I, we have freedom. We have freedom to choose right and wrong. We have the freedom to obey God or to choose to disobey God. We have the choice to surrender to him or to continue in pride. That is a choice that we have, and it's because of Jesus. You have the freedom to do that. You have the freedom to choose whether to obey God or not. And the only reason you have a choice is because of Jesus. So my encouragement to you is that you, in order to experience true freedom, you can look for freedom a million different ways. You can try to find freedom that finances or reputation or people offer, but you're never going to find it until you surrender to Jesus, until you receive the freedom that he gives to you. I hope that's freedom that you have today. If you don't have that freedom, if you're just kind of looking around for freedom, and you haven't found it yet, I'm telling you, I know where you can find it. It's in Jesus. That's the only place. If that's something you need to do today, I'd encourage you to put your hope and trust in him.